there's certainly a charm and romance about trains. There's probably many reasons why Agatha Christie never called her famous novel Murder on the Megabus. No, there's definitely something enchanting about trains, and that's why it's particularly disturbing when we read about them in the context of nuclear war. Here, they're no longer for doing the crossword or touching up your lipstick as you rattle into work, and they're no longer a source of pride as grandparents from Glasgow or Swindon tell the young'uns of the great big swaggering engines once made in the cities, and they're no longer part of a lovely trip to the Welsh or Yorkshire countryside to see a heritage steam train in action. All that charm and all that pride is stripped away when trains get involved in nuclear war planning. Suddenly, the shiny symbol of the Industrial Revolution is dragged down into the grubby desperation of British civil defence. In this podcast, we'll look at how civil servants plan to use trains in nuclear war planning, and we'll also take a quick look at the charming old rumour of the Strategic Steam Reserve, which claims Britain has hidden hundreds of old engines who will be brought back to life after nuclear war. This is the Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Once you start looking into the topic, you'll see that trains pop up everywhere in nuclear war planning. Obviously, they'll have had a use as military transport, and they were formerly used in Britain to transport nuclear weapons, although this has been dropped in favour of transport by road. America also used to rely on trains for this purpose from the 50s through to the 80s. One of our listeners, and a kind supporter of the podcast through Patreon, Jonathan Abelins, sent me a link this morning to a story on history.com about these nuclear trains which were nicknamed white trains. I'll quote from the article here. These trains looked entirely ordinary except for a few key details. They featured multiple heavily armoured boxcars sandwiched in between turret cars which protruded above the rest of the train. The turrets had slit windows through which armed DOE guards peered out prepared to shoot if they needed to defend the train. Some guards had simple rifles, while others reportedly had automatic machine guns and hand grenade launchers. Known in DOE parlance as Safe Secure Rail Cars, or SSRs, the white trains were highly resistant to attack and unauthorised entry. They also offered a high degree of cargo protection in the event of fire or serious accident. At least that's what the DOE assured Congress of in 1979. The white trains fell out of use in the 80s because, well, one of the main reasons was that uh, activists, anti-nuclear activists, had learned about the trains and had managed to suss out which routes they took and often managed to halt the trains by occupying the tracks. This led to fears, of course, of a possible hijacking of the trains whilst they were halted on the tracks. And so... The use of nuclear trains was eventually abandoned and, like Britain, America now uses massive trucks to transport the nuclear weapons. Trains also had a role in the Cold War in evacuation. This is Britain I'm talking about now. The idea of evacuating British cities was popular in the early Cold War when we still had the experience of the Second World War fresh in our minds. 
evacuation of children from the cities was, of course, reasonably successful during the war. A lot of the little nippers didn't like it, being sent away from their homes, but they were away from the Blitz. So it was relatively successful, and some Cold War planners quite naturally assumed that the experiment could be repeated in a nuclear war. Of course, this was before the hydrogen bomb had made its dreadful impact clear, before it became obvious that the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb are like chalk and cheese. So what might have worked in an atomic war simply would not work at all in a hydrogen bomb or thermonuclear war. But back in the early Cold War, when we were still toying with the idea of evacuation, the plan was to evacuate the cities using trains, as we did in the Second World War. Indeed, I found train timetables in the National Archives of Scotland, which show very, very detailed and precise train timetables to evacuate the city of Glasgow. And these show trains packed full of up to 700 people leaving the two main stations, uh, Glasgow Central and Glasgow Queen Street, every 20 minutes or so. And those trains would continue leaving the stations um, 24 hours a day until the city had been emptied of what were called then the priority classes, you know, the women, children, disabled, elderly, etc. Another use of trains uh, can be found if you look through my podcast archive and you'll see an old episode called The School Trip to Hell. And that talks about how trains would have been used to evacuate civil servants, those who had been specially selected to serve out the nuclear war in a government bunker. This bunker is uh, codenamed Burlington and is out in Wiltshire. And to get there, the specially chosen civil servants would have gathered at Kensington Olympia Station in London. And from there, they would have been taken west to serve in the nuclear bunker. So check the, the school trip to hell if you want to learn more about that. So trains play a very obvious role in nuclear war planning. I can't go into all of them in this one podcast, so I'm going to zoom in on one topic for the rest of this podcast, and that's the use of trains as ambulance trains to evacuate the sick and wounded from Britain's hospitals in advance of a nuclear attack. So let's look at these ambulance trains. In the 1950s, a committee was formed to organise ambulance trains which would be used to evacuate the sick and wounded. The Ministry of Health, who were in charge of the ambulance trains, requested 47 of them. That was 40 trains to transport wounded civilians and 7 for wounded military. Each ambulance train had space for 174 patients, plus 37 medical staff and the train crew. These trains, of course, would require extensive modifications, the most obvious of which is pulling out the seats and replacing them all with stretchers and medical equipment. Yet, this was not to be done until nuclear war actually threatened. Now, that's very optimistic, but that's the way planning worked in the Cold War. There'd be no point, of course, in planners saying... Well, we might only have a few minutes warning, so here's what we'll do. No, they had to pretend, or hope, that there'd be weeks, maybe even months of notice. But again, let's remember, this plan is from the 50s, and that's when civil servants who were in post were probably still in post during the Second World War. 
And so we can't really blame them for allowing their planning to be coloured by the experience of that war. And as we know from the history books, the Second World War loomed on the horizon for years, probably. People started to worry as soon as Hitler got into power. That was 1933. And of course, war broke out in Britain, at least, in 1939. So that's years of notice to prepare for a conflict. So the civil servants thought there's no need to build or modify these ambulance trains now. We will do it if and when nuclear war actually threatens. We'll have plenty of notice. So what would these trains actually have been like? Well, according to the documents here, each ambulance train would have had room for 228 lying down patients, 56 patients who were able to sit up, two medical officers, three nursing sisters and 32 other personnel. The train itself would have been made up of brake and boiler cars, a staff car, including space for the medical officers and the sisters, a staff car for the orderlies and the nurses, a sitting car, a staff mess car, kitchen car, pharmacy car, and then six ward cars, and then a combined ward and baggage car. Now, you may be wondering how it's possible for these trains to travel after nuclear war. Wouldn't the rails be melted or buckled or buried under debris? Well, yes, probably, but these trains were designed to be used before nuclear war. If you look back to my previous podcast called The Doctor Won't See You, I talk about plans for the NHS in nuclear war, and you'll see that one of the main features of NHS planning was to empty the hospitals. All patients who were able to be sent home would leave, either under their own steam or by collection from a relative or a volunteer who'd then take them home. Others could be dropped off at home by by NHS patient ambulances. Those who remained in hospital, too ill to be discharged, would be evacuated from the hospital to a supposedly safer place. This, of course, was particularly important for hospitals in cities which were designated as nuclear targets. But for the small minority who simply couldn't leave the hospital, who were too ill to be sent home or even to be loaded onto an ambulance train, their advice was that the medical staff moved them within the hospital to the room or the rooms which were deemed safest under nuclear attack. So that would be the rooms that had no windows and that were that were at the centre of the building, furthest away from the outside walls. So the staff would have to work out which area of the hospital, often that would probably be the mortuary, I suppose, underground, but work out where the safest places is in the hospital, that which offers greatest protection from blast and fallout. The patients would be moved to this designated area And you just have to hope that some medical staff would be willing to stay with them. But most patients would be sent home. And, of course, a tiny minority would be staying in the hospital. The rest would be evacuated on these ambulance trains, which would be dispatched to receiving hospitals in safer areas. Uh, They wouldn't just be distributed amongst hospitals in these safer areas. Um, They would also be sent to, for example, nursing homes old folks' homes, etc., which, again, under the same principle, would have been cleared in advance of nuclear war. Basically, anywhere with suitable bed space would have been requisitioned by the government, 
and made to take these evacuated patients arriving on the ambulance trains. And of course, once you've opened up lots of extra bed space, you can then assume it's going to be overwhelmed once the nuclear attack actually happens. And that's why we hear of not just nursing homes being used as emergency overflow hospitals, but also in the case of Aberdeen, I found notes in the archives about Aberdeen. Their councillors had earmarked other buildings which could possibly be used as overflow hospitals. And those included local nightclubs, hotels and discos. Basically anywhere with a big floor space that could then be filled up with stretchers and blankets. Now, those ambulance trains, once they've done their duty, delivered the patients to hopeful safety, what happens then? Well, if the bomb drops, if nuclear war occurs, then their days are done. The tracks across much of Britain will probably be unusable, and supplies of fuel will quickly run out, with little hope of resupply in the near future. So there'll be no more trains in post-nuclear Britain, at least not for a long time. Ah, but what about Britain's secret trains? There is a rumour, I don't believe it, but it has a nice charm to it, so I can't help mentioning it here. There's a rumour that the government has secretly retained some old steam trains, and these are hidden away, safe from nuclear blast, and they will be resurrected after nuclear war, when all our fancy modern trains have been made redundant through lack of fuel imports or by having their fancy electrics knocked out by the EMP. When that happens, out come the old steam engines to save the country. This rumoured collection of secret trains is known as the Strategic Steam Reserve. Now, there are lots of niggling shards of reality which knock this rumour down. Firstly, why would there be a secret horde of trains? It was no secret at all that the government had stockpiled food during the Cold War and this was stocked up in huge secret warehouses. We also know that the big Green Goddess fire engines were always kept on hand in case of emergency. So why would the steam engines be a tremendous secret? Other things are stockpiled for nuclear war and that's known about. Why not trains? And plenty of other countries had a reserve of steam trains. So why would Britons be so hush-hush? And, if you wanted to hide hundreds of these massive steam engines, where would you put them? They can't just be stacked neatly away in boxes in a warehouse, like all those tins of stew and sacks of flour. Well, some say these trains are hidden in plain sight. All those great engines you see in railway museums, or the ones puffing tourists around at railway heritage festivals, that's them. But I just can't accept it. There's mainly the unavoidable fact that much of Britain's rail network would simply be unusable after a nuclear war. Rails can always be rebuilt, of course, but after nuclear war, where is your skilled manpower and your resources? So I think this rumour comes mainly from nostalgia for these fine old steam engines. And I think it persists because there is a kernel of common sense in it. Steam trains could be of use in some disaster scenarios. 
but not in a nuclear war which destroys the very infrastructure they need to operate. finished for this week. If you have any questions about this podcast, contact me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or through my Facebook page which is called Nuclear Britain or at my website juliemcdowell.com Before we go let me thank my patrons who support this podcast every week through Patreon. If you want to donate to the podcast to help keep it going please drop by patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo You can donate some money there and in return you get some nuclear rewards or you can make a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash atomic hobo let me thank my very kind regular supporters Adam Spink, Alan Christie Andrew Key, Angus McClellan Arika, Ben Capper Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan Colin McGee, Damien Ryan Dave Marks Douglas Greenshields, Ewan McLeod Gordy McNair Helen McHale, Ian McCulloch Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins Kevin Booter, Linda Woolnuff, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catlin, Sean Judge, Sean Nilsson, Simon Allison, and Steve Sace. And Wynne Grant. Sorry Wynne, forgot about you there. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>